Welcome to the Track Quest Podcast. James Orr here with me today. Bob Borland, my co-host. What's going on, Bob? How much, man? How you doing? Oh man, I'm doing pretty good. We've got uh, Mark Baker on the podcast today. And as you guys heard, we opened up the podcast with a little bit of Mark Baker tunes. Uh, Mark Baker's, uh, in my book, a, a talented musician. And I think we're going to start opening up the podcast uh, with with uh, the, his tunes. So uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that. And yeah. if you guys want to hear more of that, um, you can... You can find his uh, CD. I believe it's available on his website, and you can check it out online. Um, Mark's also written a couple books that you can find uh, on his website as well as, I think, Amazon. Yeah. Yep. Tension on the string. Definitely a good one, especially for you, James. Now that you're uh, you're thinking about doing a self-bow next year, you should get that book, man. That'll get you fired up because tonight we're going to talk. And sorry we didn't get this one out a little sooner. Um, we do a little, we're a few weeks behind when we should have released it. We were trying, we're going to release it before whitetail season. It's kind of the end. And, uh, we talked some serious whitetails. Mark Baker is a killer, uh, and a, and a super, super humble guy, but we get a little bit of his, his, uh, tips out tonight on, uh, hunting big whitetails in Montana. Yeah. And we do a little recap on his elk season and we dive into the late season with him and whitetails, uh, and some take you along on some adventures uh, hunting whitetails with his sons. And I think we dive a little bit uh, in, into the self bows again because it's hard not to with a uh, uh, self bow uh, 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 guy like Mark. I mean, he's just a total stud. So tonight we've got Mark Baker back on. Uh, hey, Mark, how you doing tonight? Doing great. I, I talked to you earlier on the phone. It sounds like you guys are still in elk season out there in Montana. Yeah, we still we still have elk season. It gets it gets pretty tough now, you know, with the rut winding down. But uh, um, you can still chase them. Yeah, that's awesome. Did you guys uh, get out? You said you got a pretty a hot season, and then it turned to snow. It sounds like. Yeah, it was a it was a tough year weather wise. I mean, we had the first couple of weeks of the season it was nearly 100 degrees it seemed like every weekend and um and then and then it went from from that to winter time we we had a couple big snows and you know rain and snow in the high country and uh um, which we really needed because of the fire situation but uh yeah then and and the snow was was okay it was it was kind of interesting to get out in it but it uh I don't know. It made it made for some tough hunting. So, yeah, for sure. So, did you and your boys end up doing a bivy hunt like you guys had planned, or no? We didn't because of just because of those that, those two reasons. You know, the weather went from so unbearably hot to uh, you know you wouldn't want to kill something four miles back in there, and then um, to uh, to almost you know it was kind of a 
a hypothermic type of situation. It was a, it would have been a survival, you know, type bivy and and uh, while that's fun, you know, if I was an out of stater or something, you know, maybe I'd think twice about it. But since you live here all the time, you go, well, we'll we'll just wait till the weather gets nicer. But it really didn't get a whole lot nicer for us. But um, you know, and it was a new area, and we, you know, we kind of dabbled in, uh, got in, got in around uh, a new herd. It's a new old area, I should say. It's an old area that I used to hunt 30 years ago, and uh, I really wanted the boys to kind of learn it, and they got up in there and learned it a little bit, and uh, actually found some some new things, which isn't surprising because we had we had some major fires back in that country you know, between the last time I hunted it now. And uh, so we're, we're excited again for next year and, and maybe the chance of getting up there, you know, during the general season too. Yeah. It seems, seems like that snow. Did you guys have a, did the elk kind of shut up for a week or so? I know I've been, I had a Montana back in probably 2000. And I remember we were heading over and and the weather forecast was like six inches of snow, and we were just so jacked up. The bulls are going to be screaming. And then we got there, and it was just weird. It was just like it threw them off for a week or so until it kind of melted off. Yeah, I don't think they were very vocal. And, you know, in, in the past, my experience has been uh, elk, are, elk are a lot more active during nice weather, just like just like we are, you know. They, they kind of like those sunny days, and um, but when the weather's – super hot of course they're not really active and then um though it does you know give you some opportunities to ambush them around water holes and stuff maybe a little bit better but uh um going into it it was just so hot and so far back in there that you know to kill something back in there would have been a a tough slog out with with elk meat and then uh and then you know it just went from from a hot summer weather to you know, eight inches of snow back in the back country. And it was good. It put the fires out, I think, or at least calmed them down. And, um, and we've had snow in there ever since it never did melt. So, um, crazy. You guys, did you guys try any of your tree stand hunting during the heat in the beginning? No, we really didn't. We were, we were really kind of relearning this area. You know, it was, uh, it's a little basin up high and, uh, there, there's, it, it was kind of spared by, there were two or three big fires in the area and it was kind of spared. So the, the bedding areas that I knew about were still intact, I guess, for a ba- lack of a better word. And, uh, you know, we were, we were really just kind of looking to locate the, uh, the wallows and, uh, um, but when you walk into something that's been burned by, by giant fires like that, uh, everything's new and everything's different. And, and of course, you know, almost 30 years since I had been back in there, uh, what was once, you know, small trees and replanted trees in, in certain areas, they were all mature trees now. So it was, it was, uh, really kind of new and exciting and, uh, and a lot of fun. Um, so we didn't, we didn't even bother with the tree stand thing. We, you know, we, we just kind of called and hunted like most people did and, uh, checked out the sign and, tried to learn as much as we could, uh, learn some new stuff about the area and, um, got into a little bit of elk up there. The boys went up one time without me on their own and got, got right into a herd bull and some cows and, uh, um, right, right below, um, where Corey and I had uh, got into them the week before. And, 
And so, you know, it's that's all that's all exciting. And that's that's kind of how elk hunting can go. <laughs> For sure. But it's yeah. fun. It's fun and it's at, and it's absolutely beautiful back there. That that high country, you know, that's those mountains of, up above 10,000 and uh um you know, it's just I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. It's it's wild country, and it doesn't get really much wilder in the lower 48, and it's it's beautiful. Wow, that sounds exciting. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. Cool. Well, tonight we're really hoping we can talk some whitetail. Um, I know you probably haven't quite switched gears there yet, but really like to hear more about Montana whitetail hunting, and I know that's something that you definitely are passionate about. You know, I, I am, I, uh, when I, when I started off, uh, following my dad around bow hunting, you know, it would have been in Michigan and, um, and it was always after whitetails and I, and then we moved out to Montana when I was 15 and <clears throat> whitetails were kind of special to me though in paradise Valley, there were no whitetails. It was, it was all mule deer. Um, and with whitetails just barely starting to come into the country, you know, via the river bottoms and the creeks and, um, I can remember, you know, early on, you you hardly ever saw a whitetail, and the first couple deer I killed were mule deer. But then I started seeing whitetails, and um, to me, I was just they just seemed. I, I don't know what the word is, you know. I know a big muley buck is as challenging as anything, but whitetails, there's something about whitetails they're just about as as wily and crafty as 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 game gets in it you know growing up with elk around my all of my hunting life um whitetails have always been my favorite some of my best elk spots were found while i was looking for whitetail spots and yeah uh, you know so i i love to whitetail hunt and and uh early on it was it was tough it was a learning process thank Thank goodness we had uh, Gene Wenzel in Montana, and he wrote a lot of great books. And um, you know, we could uh, take take what I read from Gene's books and uh, what I'd hear from him at a Montana bow hunters banquet or something, and then take it to the woods and and apply it myself. And um, I, it's just been a great journey for me, and and we really enjoy it. Yeah, that's awesome. That sound. Me and Robert just put a podcast out this week kind of going over our deer hunting plans for this fall and we got to talking about the Winslow brothers and whitetails and mule deer and blacktails and uh for me I'm I'm a blacktail nut here on the west coast and I was telling Robert you know I, I'd take blacktail hunting over elk hunting and he, he thinks I'm crazy for that but uh, I, I just have a real strong, deep rooted passion for them. And I think it's because it's, they're, it's so difficult. Well, and, and that's the thing for me, uh, you know, elk hunting really is a young man's game. You get to be my age. It's tough to get up in those steep mountains. And, um, you know, obvi- there's obviously there's situations that are, that, uh, that you can make it happen and, and a, a person's health, you know, sure has plays a factor but if you work hard your whole life like i've had to in construction you know it takes a toll on your body and you get older it's it's tough to get up in those that steep country and whitetails is something you can hunt your whole life and uh the level of challenge you can you can make it easy um you know it's it's fairly easy to fill a couple of doe tags and fill the freezer um they're they're excellent eating 
because you know they're always eating crops or hay fields or something they they just have a way about it and and it makes the venison really good um and uh and you can make whitetails as challenging as you want them want especially with self bows and and primitive gear um you know if you want to challenge yourself and hunt them from the ground um, there's just so many ways to do it and um to me that's the perfect game animal the, the perfect quarry to chase your whole life yeah i concur uh you know as far as with the blacktails it's something i'm going to be able to do my whole life um i think that's a nice transition as you talk about the self bows it do you change your bow setup going from elk into whitetail no, I really don't. We we hunt with the same bows that we hunt elk with for everything. I mean, even if we hunt rabbits, we'll we'll use the same bows. And I, I think that's really a key to, uh, to being able to hunt with self bows all of the time. I, I you know you you need to get good with your gear if you're switching up all of the time. It's that confidence thing, and I and I think probably I said something about that maybe the last time we talked, but um, having the confidence that your gear can do what you need it to do and and feeling really familiar with what you're you're using that that translates it you know that helps with your success in the field absolutely so i know we asked you this in the last podcast but can you refresh us on uh the bow weight you're shooting to yourself bow and the uh how how heavy of an arrow you're shooting and whatnot tell us a little more about your equipment you know anymore i like to shoot 60 to 65 pounds um I'm real comfortable with that. That seems light to me. I, I always shot 70 pounds, sometimes up to 80 pound bows. Um, but I, I'm really comfortable shooting 65 pounds anymore. Um, my arrows, I, I like them to be up there 10 grains uh, per pound of bow weight. So, you know, they're, they're 650, 700 grains, maybe more. Um, I like about 200 grains of weight up front with, with my broadhead and I shoot big feathers in the back. And uh, I, I really don't change it up a whole lot. I'm not into experimenting. I, I, it works for me. It's worked in a lot of situations, and uh, I'm I'm happy with it. I'm, you know, it it took me a long time to get to a a, a real good um, to figure it out, especially you know in the days before the internet and YouTube. It took me a long time to figure that out, and I and um, you know it was a long trial and error process, but I think uh, for me, I, I hit on something that works for me, and I'm happy with it. And when I share it with other people, the boys shoot virtually the same gear. They're shooting a little bit more poundage than I am, but the, the same arrows, the same feathers, the same uh, broadheads, and uh, um, and it works for us. And you know, they they like to do what dad does. And I and I think all kids, if you get kids into bow hunting, they should do what their dad does. You know, that's. That's uh, who they idolize and who they want to be like when they're young, and um, and who who better to teach them uh, when you can show them how you do it and and why it works. So yeah, I I agree a hundred percent. When um, I switched from the compound bow to traditional archery, my daughters were like, we we're ready to make that switch too. So they 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 made that switch with me, mm-hmm. and they've embraced it and. Being, I have three daughters, mm-hmm. and being said, my oldest is 13, and she's still only shooting 25 pounds, and she wants to go hunting, and she's got to be able to draw, she's got to be able to shoot 40 pounds for deer, 50 for elk in the state of Oregon, right. and so I'm getting her into rifle hunting, and she wants to bow hunt, 
<laughs> and I, I've offered her the compound bow, and she's like, Dad, I, I want to shoot my longbow. That's it. <laughs> and, and, you know, so that, I mean, that's it. So she's just going to have to get stronger, and, you know, uh, I'll support her in whatever she wants to do, but she wants to be like Dad, and it definitely uh, is special. It makes me feel, you know, good about that and whatnot. Yeah, yeah that's great. So Montana Whitetails is something I'm really interested in. Can you tell uh, our audience, like, if, uh, you know, coming from out of state, how that all works as far as uh, is it over the counter? Is there draw units? When does the season begin? How's the season broken up? Can you give us a rundown on uh, for us out of staters that want to pursue the Whitetail in Montana? Well, uh Basically, the seasons um, mirror the elk seasons. It, we have a general uh, archery season, and that's for deer, elk, um, pretty much bears, wolves, um, you know, antelope. Antelope is a little bit different. Um, it starts earlier. It ends right about now for archery only, and then it'll start up again for uh, for gun hunters and go to about November the first week or so into November and then antelope quits. But uh, so we have that general archery season, which is six weeks and it starts the first Saturday of September. And there's a week between archery and the general season. We don't have a rifle season in Montana. We have what's called a general season. And, and our general season really has been a savior for us. It, it's kept crossbows and muzzleloaders out of our bow season and it does it because it it's a five week long season where you can hunt with basically anything um if you want to hunt with your with archery gear that's not legal during the archery only season that's the time you can hunt with it so um you know before they they legalize lighted knocks in the archery season you could hunt with lighted knocks during the general season you don't have to take bow hunter education to shoot a bow during a general season you can use an atlatl during the general season. You can use a high-powered rifle, um, and and you can use a crossbow during the general season. So there's a there's a five-week season for crossbows to be used in Montana, and that's kept them out of our archery season. So, um, um, but that's that's basically it, and it all seems to end. It ends that weekend uh, right after uh, Thanksgiving. That's our basic season structure, and then there's like I said, there's antelope in there mountain lion seasons start basically when you can start bow hunting and go until quotas are met in the individual units um black bear seasons some have a quota some some don't um there's turkey seasons going on and and bird seasons going on and duck hunting going on all at the same time but uh that's the general thing and then uh there are over-the-counter tags but i think for the most part they're doe tags so they're um, non-residents can come and buy a doe tag uh, but if you want to put in for uh, you know you can put in for a deer combo they have the elk combo which is the expensive one that everybody's kind of afraid of for montana but uh, you can also put in for a deer combo which is still pretty expensive but the combo allows you also to uh, hunt birds and fish and uh um, and then it gives you the opportunity to put in for some of the other species like antelope or um, extra doe tags in certain units. We only get one buck in this state, and it's you can use it on either a mule deer or a whitetail. It doesn't 
you know, it's um, doesn't really matter. And then most of the districts for the whitetail, you can use your buck tag and 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 use it on a, a doe, use it on an antlerless deer, also. So uh, you know, if you're just a meat hunter, that's a you buy a buck tag and you can definitely shoot a doe. So, right on. So when you're hunting the, the rut, you're hunting during the general season. So there's rifle hunters and whoever, crossbow, whatever. That's when correct. in November. Okay. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So, so we, have, we have to wear our hunters orange just like everybody else. So okay. tell us about the rut. Is that, is that, that pre-rut, is that starting October 25th-ish or a little later? You know, I really don't notice it happening. I mean, you'll start noticing some scrapes showing up in October, but I don't really notice a lot of activity until November. So, um, and I, and, and it's really for me, the, the, the rut in Montana seems to peak right around the 20th of November, um, at least in our part of the state. And I don't think it varies more than a day or two, almost anywhere in the state that you go, um, and that and it, that's just like an elk red. It doesn't really change from year to year. It's the same thing. You know, people will say, um, "Well, the rut's not happening this year because it's too hot, or it's or you know for whatever reason." But it always happens the same time, and um, biologists know that they they know when the fawns are born, and and basically when the fawns have to be born to survive the best. Mother Nature determines. Uh, when that rut will happen and in a certain area it happens the same time every year and uh it's right around the 20th of november and it seems to me things really don't start kicking into gear until about the 10th of november uh to where i start really getting excited and then and then there's a there's a two-week period there um well 10 days anyway that uh before you know the big bucks really lock down with does that you can rattle them in and you can call them and you can do all kinds of stuff but uh um that pre-rut uh you know and that the activity can vary a little bit from year to year and i'm i'm sure the moon has a little effect on things all of that stuff matters but uh you know come november i'm really starting to get serious about it and spending as much time out there as i can and and it's fun to watch that stuff develop so like you said i mean i agree 100 percent. the rut happens and no matter what, every same time every year, it's just how it expresses itself to us as hunters. Exactly. That's, it seems to be weather dependent on how we, if we see it as being a good rut or a bad rut, um, it depends on the weather, if they're going to be being active in daylight hours. Do you, do you find that to be true? Yeah, the weather, the moon, um, I think has an effect whether they're active during daylight hours. You know, when it's really kicking in, they're active all day long. So you just have to be out there. And who, I don't know many people that can plan their hunt around the, the phase of the moon or, you know, if they have that kind of luxury from their work schedule or whatever. But, uh, you know, I think a moon that's that's overhead during the daytime can certainly increase the activity during the daytime. Um, but, you know, I, I don't, I, I, I'm out there whenever I can be out there. So it, and it looks like the moon overhead over foot is going to kind of can kind of fall in that uh time frame you're talking about that uh 15th 20th i think of what, the way i was looking at it yeah i think the last time i looked at it it was looking pretty good so yeah that could be good yeah it's awesome so tell us some 
tactics that you guys are employing? Are you guys uh, running and gunning and rattling, or are you tree stand hunting or ground blinds? Or we really do. We do just about everything. I uh, um, early season's a great time to kill a big buck. So when they're still in that feeding period, I know everybody's thinking about elk, but those first two weeks of the season, uh, those big bucks are, you know, they're still in the velvet, usually the first few days, and then they shed the velvet. And then until mid-September, that's a great chance. If you've got one kind of pattern, you've got a really good chance of of killing a big buck. Um, a lot of guys don't like to because they don't want to miss the uh, the rut. But my son, Corey, killed a, nice, a great buck with a cell phone this year. Um, oh, really? Made a good shot already. So he's got, we've got one buck down. Um, can you tell us that story? Uh, well, I can tell you he was, <laughs> he was a couple hundred yards from me and uh, he had a, a nice buck come out. We, we hunt a lot of funnels. Even during the rut, we hunt funnels. And uh, so a funnel is, uh, for people that don't know, you know, a place where you can predict deer movement based on, you know, fence crossings, places that they cross water. Um, it can be trees that are down in a certain area or uh, cover or a ditch or there's a lot of things that create funnels. And, and that's, that's kind of how we hunt mostly. Um, so we're not hunting field edges. In fact, we're, we're quite a ways from the field edges. And then we try to stay out of the bedding areas because that's their secure cover. So it's, it's fun to kind of hunt the funnels between the two. Real similar to what I was talking about elk. And uh, except whitetails are a little more predictable, I think. Um, but he just was hunting a classic funnel and a juniper uh, stand that was probably, I, I know the stand is not more than seven and a half feet off the ground. It's a real low stand, but a juniper, uh, we like the junipers because they're, they're so aromatic. They give you really good background cover and uh, deer just don't seem to spot you in them. And uh, he was, uh, this buck came out and uh, came right into him and we had a north wind. So it was a perfect place to be that night and uh, gave him, I think it was less than a 10 yard shot. And he, he actually sh uh, shot it through the shoulder blade. So he's shooting more than 70 pounds with a self bow with, and he put it through the shoulder blade with, uh, I think he was using a bodkin three wow. blade. Wow. Like guys, they think you can use those old bodkins. They're made out of pot metal or whatever, but <laughs> we found they work great on whitetails and deer. And we like three blades on deer because on a marginal shot, they do a lot of damage inside. So, um, you know, Wenzel Woodsman's are one of our favorite blades. And, uh, um, but we, we use these bodkins. I, a lot of times I'll put a, a woody weight. You know what those are? Those little uh, weighted, they're really good on wood shafts. So if you want to use 125 grain broadhead, you buy a 75 grain woody weight and you, it's just a taper with a taper. And then you, you're basically just stacking that taper and adding 75 grains right right behind your broadhead. And uh, he shot that thing right through the shoulder on that buck. And, uh, you know, he traveled quite a bit. Um, we backed up. This was one of the few deer that we leave overnight. I don't like to leave deer overnight because we have so many bears and coyotes and stuff. Um, we backed off, left him, came back the next day and found him within 15 yards of where we stopped so it was a, it was a wise decision i'm sure he was still alive there when we were 
when we backed off, you know, and, and it was an evening deer. But uh, was he a mature whitetail or? Yeah, yeah, probably a four-year-old buck. Very nice. You know, four by four, not a, um, you know, one thing we don't, Montana has a lot of older age deer. Um, just just because it's such a big state, we do have a lot of hunters, I think, per capita. We're the highest in the nation, but um, deer can grow old in this state. And uh, so it's fun to hunt them because you, you get to see a lot of what, Nat, how natural deer act, you know, in the wild and, and their, their vocalizations, their, um, the buck doe ratios are, are usually good. So uh, things like rattling and grunting and, and stuff like that really work well here. Um, was the uh, winter kill severe for you guys last year? No, it wasn't. It wasn't too bad. We, you know, we had a, I would call it probably more of a normal, <laughs> normal winter. It was, uh, you know, we had good snowpack in the mountains. It's, it, you wouldn't know it with the fire season we had, but going into the summer, we were really optimistic. We just didn't get any more rain after June, it seemed like. But uh, yeah, we had a really good snowpack this year. The rivers stayed fairly high, and um, and uh, um, but but it wasn't excessive. There wasn't really a lot of super cold weather, which is you know. Um, one of the things that can that's hard on deer, I think, and uh, it seems like there's a, there's an awful lot of does with uh, twin fawns this year. So I think they did good through the whole um, the whole winter. Very nice. Uh, was Corey hunting public land, and is that juniper stand a fixed stand or? Um, it, it's uh, it's kind of on, right on an edge, a transition. So it goes from they they come across a oh, channel in the Yellowstone and come up through some mature cottonwood trees, and they get to an edge, and uh, and there's just a few scattered juniper, and then they get into a big uh, buffalo berry patch. There's just buffalo berries scattered, and it's and it's kind of a big pasture. It's it's private land, but it is open. Uh, for public hunting. We've been hunting, I've hunted there since I was in high school. Um, fortunately, the landowner does, uh, um, he, he lets people hunt there. And uh, and we've got a bunch of other great hunters that we hunt with on this property and, and we all kind of know who each other are. And, and the guys that are really serious about it work hard at it. And then we work really hard at it. Um, it takes us a long time. You know, when you don't use game cameras, you spend a lot of time in the woods to learn. It. And, you know, typically it takes me three years. I'm, I'm not complaining. I'm actually, you know, this is, that's what I like. I wouldn't miss any of it. And uh, it takes three years to learn a, uh, learn a place to where you can consistently hunt it, I think, and, uh, um, and have success. So, And game, game cameras aren't legal in Montana during season. Is that correct? No, they're not. Uh, you know, unless they've changed something, I'm not aware of it, but it, they're not legal in Montana during the hunting season, no. Copy. So that basically means there's a season going September, October, November, December, January. Some places it'll go into it. it the general season quits just before December, but there are some areas that you can hunt into uh, into the middle of January. Um, like in the outskirts of Bozeman, there's, uh, there, you know, around some of the cities, there's, there's a, there's deer problems. And so you can buy, you know, 
in places up to five antlerless doe tags and and hunt clear into January. And but sometimes you're hunting with uh, it's usually uh, um, restricted weapons, so um, it it can include crossbows, pistols, shotguns, um, and bows and arrows. The place that we hunt though is is uh, not open late season, so you know Thanksgiving weekend that's the end of it for us. And you're getting a one buck tag, and you can apply for the doe tag. Is that? Yep. Yeah, for this this particular uh, ranch that we hunt on, uh, we can kill two does, and uh, and we get one buck tag for the whole state. So, um, you know, we we like to. It's not that we're trophy hunters, but we like to be out there the whole season, and sure. uh, and we hold out, you know, for a mature deer. Doesn't it's we we don't enter anything in the record books. So, um, if we like it, we shoot it, and. Uh, um, for us, you know, holding out for a mature deer just keeps us out there longer, and uh, and then you get to you get to see all the other deer on the place, and um, and uh, and and all of the things that happen during the rut. You know, if unless you kill your deer early like Corey did, so he'll have to go out and take pictures this year and watch <laughs> us. Well, he he still got some doe tags, right? He still has his doe tags. So, and so a mature uh, buck is he in the two hundred pound class or? Oh yeah. Yeah, and I, I've killed a, a couple of deer. I think that would be pushing three hundred pounds. Wow! Uh, in the past, there's there's some big deer here, and I and I think, uh, you know, I think we get, I don't, you know, I don't know where the whitetails that we have came from. If I don't think they came from the mid east, it makes sense that they came down from Canada. You know, those Alberta deer get huge, and and so there could be a few of those genetics there. We don't have the the crop. We don't have the crops that they have in the Midwest, like Iowa and and uh, North, even North Dakota and Minnesota. We just don't have those crops out in Montana, so we don't get those big corn-fed and and grain-fed uh, deer as much here with the humongous racks and the humongous body size that the feed can put on them. But um, but there's they're big-bodied deer, you know. The mo- the further north you go, uh, the bigger the body sizes get. So. They're big-bodied deer. So for a non-resident w- was going to come out for seven days to hunt whitetails, what, what seven days would you recommend? Uh, you know, it, if it was for me and I wanted to hunt the rut for bucks, I would hunt uh, about the 10th of November until the 20th. That would be my ideal, you know. So any any seven days in that period of time, I've, I – I seem to start seeing the really nice bucks about the 10th of November that come out of the, that have been hiding or they're totally nocturnal. They'll, they'll start getting active because they know that it's, you know, it's right on the verge of happening. And uh, they just don't waste it. Those bigger mature bucks don't waste any energy, you know, going out chasing deer that aren't ready to be bred. They're, they know when it's going to happen and that's when they get active. And, uh, that's the time that you can be out there and you can rattle a big bruiser in or or grunt and, and call or you can use decoys. I mean, just about anything works. Um, you can ambush them, you know, on you just if you're in the funnel areas. And and you and the, th- the key to it is really during the rut is to hunt the does. If you hunt the does, you'll find the bucks. Is that pressure pretty significant uh, considering you're hunting with rifle hunters and muzzleloaders and stuff at that time? 
It it can be. Now, this particular ranch that we're lucky enough to hunt on right now, um, they don't allow gun hunters, which is which is nice. It's not a big ranch. Um, it, it, it's you know it's probably three miles of river of Yellowstone River frontage, but it's it's pretty sparse. You know how it is out west. You know it's um, it's not three miles of cover. That's for sure. There's a lot of open <laughs> ground. So um, so you know you uh, but because they don't allow gun hunters on there, the deer do seem to flock towards that area. They're not being pressured. Um, the ranch to the south of us is owned by an outfitter, but he doesn't he doesn't hunt that part of it. So there's a lot of deer that come back and forth between his fence. Same thing with across the river. So they're crossing the river all the time. Um, so it's a much bigger area in an area that that is kind of limited for gun hunting. Um, it's you know it's one of those areas that you spend your lifetime looking for and you and you luck into finding it and then you i shouldn't even be telling you guys about it i can tell you but i'd have to kill you yeah exactly <laughs> sounds that perfect kind of so so um, gps coordinates or <laughs> yeah that, i don't do gps so let's um i'd like to just kind of get more into the tactics part if mm-hmm. we're done talking about the seasons and stuff um so you're obviously um you said you hunt from the ground and from the trees um do you do all day sits yeah, I've started doing that the last uh, three or four years. I that mid midday there's there's definitely a flurry of activity, and I and I think uh, you know, like I said, during that time those those bucks are. I only do it during that time. I won't do an all day sit early season okay. or even now. I, I think you're just kind of wasting your time. And personally, I think being out there is almost a detriment because I, the deer know you're out there, mm-hmm. and they'll and it, and it affects their behavior. Um, I, I don't know how you can avoid it. There's, uh, you know, you, you plan your entrance and your exit routes and uh, you hunt for the wind and you do everything you can. But um, inevitably, inevitably, you've got to cross deer trails to get to where you want to be. And, and they figure it out and they know they're being hunted. So um, I think, you know, until the rut happens and, and then you're mostly targeting bucks and, and the bucks are wandering all over the place then and they're coming from different areas they, there's bucks there that we don't even see during during the summer or the early season that are wandering through so um it's it's worth your while to sit you know all day um yeah, now as you, much as you can do you do you go in we kind of had this discussion i think on our last one podcast we did just me and james talking but do you go in with a flashlight before light or do you sneak in after light no, we go in before light. Um, yeah. Try not to do a flashlight, but um, but I think flashlight is a good safety item. So if you're hunting public land where there's other hunters, I would certainly use a flashlight. In this this particular property, we don't necessarily do it. I, I would, you know, I used to go in as as early as an hour before shooting light. Now, you know, fifteen twenty minutes is is plenty early. Um, and and actually, you know, sometimes by then you can already see light on the on the eastern horizon, you know. Um, so usually I don't need a flashlight, you know. And we you don't have to hike too far, maybe a half a mile. Yeah. Um, depends on which which stand I want to sit that morning, or you know. You guys live when, live in clear sky country. It's always 
raining here in the jungle, so <laughs> we don't have the option of a no light. Yeah, you made that that comment about um, we know how it is. It actually, where where we're at, it's it's a jungle. It's not open. <laughs> it's the opposite. It's everything's yeah, cover. That's true. Well, you've been to the eastern. Oh yeah, eastern yeah. We we had the open Washington. stuff too. Yeah. So um, so oh, go ahead, James. Are, um, are these tree stands? Are you guys hanging these now? Are they staying up year long? Are you how many stands are you guys putting out? Um, tell me a little bit about that. Well, you know, since there's, there's actually, there's four of us that hunt these stands. So, you know, we probably have 20 stands up. I, I leave them up year round. Um, but we go through every year and check every one of them, make sure that they're safe, make sure that the, you know, if they're not growing into trees, if they are, we, you know, that they look like they're going to, we take them and rehang them, um, and then through the season, I will move several of them. You know, sometimes, I mean, if you're in a place and you're you're seeing deer 50 yards away, you might as well be 100 yards away with a bow. So, you know, you're always trying to perfect your ambush and, and fine tune it. And uh, and that's always a lot of fun. You know, you move a stand to a new spot. First, first few times you sit it, you don't know what's going to happen. That's exciting. Um, you know, you have confidence in your ability and you, you know it's a good spot, but um, not always knowing what's going to happen. That's, that's part of the fun of it. That's another argument against uh, game cameras. You don't want to know. <laughs> I mis- like the surprises. Yeah. The mystery of it's good too. It really is. I mean, I don't want to name the deer. I, I, it's nice to, to see deer that I've never seen before. And, yeah, yes. you don't want to be shooting Bob and Jim and no, <laughs> <laughs> speaking of naming the deer. Um, so you get deer, in that country too, traveling, you know, deer you haven't seen, they roam for miles. I mean, during oh, the yeah. rut. Miles. Yeah. Yeah. Miles. Yeah. yeah and for, are I, the meal. I think you've tracked some of those deer, you know, going 15 miles in a night. Yeah. So. Are, are the mule deer showing up on the scene with the whitetails or are they really keeping separate ground? You know, they are, there's, there's still mule deer in on, in this area on this ranch. Um, but you know, in general, the whitetail have run the mule deer out. They're they're a more aggressive species. They're uh, they're territorial where mule deer aren't as territorial. Um, when the when the mule deer come into rut, you know, when you we even have hybrid deer around here, and uh, a hybrid deer is always bred by a, a whitetail buck will breed a mule deer doe um, because a buck a whitetail buck is used to chasing down their does. The does run from them. If you've ever watched rutting activity, the the reverse doesn't happen. Mule deer does will stand and, and wait for a mule deer buck. So they're easy pickings for a whitetail buck. <laughs> but a whitetail doe will run from a mule deer buck and a mule deer buck buck will sit. He'll go, what? What are you running for? You know, <laughs> so it's always yeah. a mule, it's always a whitetail buck that breeds a mule deer doe. Yeah, that, that's the same thing here. The blacktail bucks will breed the mule deer does. Um, it, where they overlap, but not really the other way around from my understanding. Yeah. And, and the whitetails are definitely territorial. They, they live in a much smaller area where, you know, mule deer do, uh, sometimes they'll, uh, they'll migrate a little bit from, from, uh, especially during the rut, the bucks will come down from the mountains and, uh, and hit, hit, you know, the doe families and, uh, um, but the, 
in general, I think the whitetails are a lot more aggressive about protecting their territory, their food sources. They'll get up and box with, you know, and things get, are eating the same thing. And um, they're just a more aggressive species. And I think they've they've pretty much run a lot of the mule deer out. Um, so um, speaking of aggressive uh, and rattling, do you rattle from your tree stands? Yeah, we do. Yeah. We definitely do. And we blind rattle all of the time. Um, you know, we don't just rattle when we see a buck in the distance. We'll we'll rattle and then and then hang the horns up and get ready to go because uh, and it can take an hour for deer to come in. But sometimes I've rattled with one rattling session. I've rattled as many as nine deer at a time come in to my wow. stand. Wow, that's just awesome. blind, you know, not yeah. seeing it. So that's that's really a cool thing. And and it's like anything, you know, the younger deer are definitely more susceptible to coming in. Um, and uh, getting fooled. But when you get one to come in, if another one's coming in, he sees the other one there, that makes it a whole lot easier. When they start to see the other deer around, that's a natural decoy, and they'll all come in then. But uh, the first one that comes in is is always always on pins and needles, and they can pinpoint exactly where you're at. So Yeah, well, the first one that comes into my stand is always in trouble. <laughs> 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 they are, I'll tell you that when you that's the one thing with Colin is they they know exactly where that noise is coming from and so you got to be really careful about moving and getting away with anything yeah so how about table fare um mule deer versus whitetail tell us tell us your uh your thought on that well I, I think in general whitetails are better um but I've had mule deer that are eating in the same hay fields as the is the uh, whitetails in there just as good so but any day of the week you know if i was uh, putting my money out for a venison dinner somewhere or my friends say well you got your choice tonight uh got a big old mule deer buck or a big old whitetail buck i'm going for the whitetail buck any day of the week copy that both of them are probably tough but that whitetail is not going to be as gamey as that mule deer so like you, I'm, I'm definitely, uh, you know, I'm not a trophy hunter either, but have, have you taken any, uh, whitetails of size as far as, um, maturity and, and rack in Montana? Can you tell us a little bit about that or, or your sons? Yeah, I've, uh, you know, I've killed a few that would probably go Pope and young and, uh, I, I, the best ones I've, uh, killed, uh, a couple six by sixes. Um, which are good, big, mature deer, you know, um, I would say a couple of them, they'd probably go five and a half, six and a half years old. Um, we kill a lot of three and a half and four and a half year old bucks. And, and they're, that's generally the ones we kill that are 120 to 130 bucks and they're four by fours. And, uh, you know, those, those are the ones that we have killed the most of, but you know, we, we've killed some a few not really nice ones and uh um it's always fun when you see a big one like that and uh um i i don't always just pick one deer and hunt hunt for that deer year round i um i did have one uh one buck that i uh really wanted to kill all season i only saw him three times i saw him early on one time when he poked his his head out of a bedding area and then he turned around and disappeared back in there um and that was early in the season. I said, that's the buck I want to kill. And uh, I saw him one other time 
during the rut with a bunch of does. And then the last time I saw him was the very last day of the general season, the last afternoon, within the last hour. And he came out of that same bedding area that I first saw him. And uh, he was checking a scrape line, and I just happened to know where that scrape line would go. And um, when when he disappeared, I was actually in a stand when I saw him. He disappeared. I got down out of my stand. I ran back towards his bedding area, got down on the ground. It was real... We live in a really windy spot, especially November is our windiest month of the year. Um, if you've read any of my stories, I, I talk about the wind blowing 13 boxcars off the train tracks. And uh, Livingston is an extremely windy place. It's got to be one of the windiest places in the country. Um, we just have that whole east slope of the Rockies thing going on and the Chinook winds. And uh, um, we have this long Paradise Valley is a long funnel coming off of the Yellowstone Plateau, which is at seven, 8,000 feet. And it just it just funnels those thermals and those winds down that valley for 50 miles until it hits the town of Livingston, right in the canyon, right where we live. And um, so the way, we get 100-mile-an-hour winds pretty common here. Wow. Um, wow. We can be out hunting, and it'll blow 40, 50, 60 miles an hour for a month nonstop on end, and you have to hunt in it. And of course, you don't climb in trees when it's blowing that hard. Um, and if you do, you only you only weigh about five feet high, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So we do hunt on the ground a lot, and we have a lot of luck in those windy situations because when when it's blowing that hard, um, everything's moving, and there's a it, it, it sounds like a freight train or a jet engine, and so that nullifies a couple of the whitetail senses, and you can. You know, if you set up in the right spot and anticipate it or or you want to make a sneak, you know, or you're still hunting, you can have really good luck in wind like that. Um, they're going to be out feeding because, they, you know, when it's blowing for a month, they got to eat, whether the wind's blowing or not. They're going to be out rutting because the rut happens no matter what. And uh, and they're they're used to it around here just like just like we get used to it. So um, anyway, I got down, got got along this high water channel. And uh, got down on my knees and knocked an arrow. And sure enough, I didn't have to wait five or ten minutes. And he came by and came by me at about 13 yards. And I and I shot him. And he didn't go 20 yards. And uh, I hit him actually in front of the legs. So this is a this is an interesting story. It's kind of a good learning experience too. Um, I hit him in front of the legs, and I must have cut a big one of the big arteries that goes up to his brain because he. Uh, you know, he, he kind of went down, his head started bobbing, and then he went down. And I'm, you know, I'm I'm yelling without yelling. <laughs> I'm screaming to myself. <laughs> yeah, I got him, you know. How much penetration? Uh, I got, you know, full penetration, but the arrow was still in him, in his, in his neck, ahead of his, was ahead of his shoulders. And... Uh, so, so I walked up, he's down on the ground, he's down, and I could see the blood just coming out. And uh, so I didn't give him the usual half an hour, you know, I know he's down, he's dead, he's got to be dead. So I walked up to him and, and he's laying there in, his, in a big pool of blood. And, um, and I know, then I noticed his eyes were closed and I said, well, that's not right. If he's dead, his eyes need to be open. So let this be a lesson. So I, <laughs> I knocked another arrow with my longbow and I shot him again. And when that arrow hit him, he went from prone on the ground, six feet in the air, straight up. This is a, this was one of those 300 pound deer, big six by six. 
six feet up in the air so fast that, I mean, if he would have came towards me, I, he'd have got me. Um, and then when he hit the ground, he was out again. And I, <laughs> Then the adrenaline hit me, and I went, whoa. So I grabbed another arrow, and I put another one in him, and it did the same thing. Just I'm from laying on his side, just boom, you know, six, seven feet in the air, and then he hit the ground. That time his eyes were open. He was dead. But uh, is is he in your office? He's in my uh, my man my the one part of the house my wife lets me decorate. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's my awesome. little trophy room. Yeah, yeah, nice. Is he uh, is he in that one thirty class or? Oh no, he's uh, he's in the one uh, one fifty one sixty class. Oh yeah, that's an awesome. He's a, he's a nice buck. Very so, cool. You know, off the ground with a longbow. That's great. Oh yeah, yeah, that's really awesome. The other biggest buck I killed was also the last day of the general season. And I he, see you keep looking off there. Is he right they're there? Right, they're right there. Is there any way you can point that camera to him? <laughs> well, let's see. I don't know if you'll be able to see it. If I did this, and I don't know if you look beyond that ceiling there. Oh, I can see a lot of horns back there. <laughs> There's a lot of horns up there. Here's here's some right above my. Oh, wow. Oh, wow, yeah. That's a nice, big, heavy buck. Yes, there are a lot of Europeans. Those, those are the 120 bucks that we killed, 121. Yeah, very cool. That's awesome. That's very cool. <laughs> so the wind, I know for the blacktails, I, I want to, like, the wind is awesome. It's got them up and moving. And from my, I do a lot of research for whitetail hunting, even though I've never hunted whitetails, mm -hmm. because there's very limited information about hunting blacktails. Yeah. And since I'm ambush hunting them, I'm looking to the whitetail guys to, to get information. And yeah. it seems like the wind and rain isn't favored by the whitetail community, at least in the, in the North and the Midwest. How is that, uh, in Montana? I mean, it sounds like it gets them up and moving. Yeah. Well, um, you know, during, while it's raining, they're not going to be moving so much, but right after a rainstorm or a snowstorm, uh, snow doesn't seem to affect them either way. I wouldn't say rain probably does either. Uh, during the rut, the bucks are moving, I think anyway, but right after there's definitely a, a spike in activity because they're especially if it's early enough like pre-rut where they're checking scrapes and they're scent checking stuff that that rain and that moisture uh it seems to kind of clear out the scrapes and so that you know those big bucks won't even walk up to the scrapes they'll scent check from downwind but when it when it rains they'll all seem to come to those scrapes and hit them and then refresh them so for whitetails right right after and then you know maybe right before but uh really anytime during those you know like i said from the 10th to the 20th at clear to the end of the season you just need to be in the woods um, do, do the mule deer have any um scrape do they use scrape lines or or, or utilize that um i i think a little less so they're you know they're a lot more like elk where they they gather a harem and uh and they seem to be less tuned into a certain uh territory i mean they may hang in an area for a long time but uh um you know those are those are bucks that come from afar and they just kind of come down and they gather the does and they're and it, it's more about taking care of the does i think and uh you don't see as much competition and stuff i i 
course, I don't hunt mule deer as much as I do whitetails, so I'm right. far from being an expert. I'm, I don't consider myself an expert on, on anyone. I'm just always learning. But uh, Sure, suit it to the game. So yeah. you guys use um, – hound dogs are still legal to run cats and bears in Montana. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, not so – Not bears, just cats. Just cats. So the cat population is, is under control? And I think there's more cats than there ever has been. Um, you know, I Montana has a weird way of, of counting animals. I think cats are one animal that's really tough to uh, to get accurate counts on. They uh, we have a you know a season that you can chase lions with with dogs, and that that usually starts right after the general season ends. So the first of December, that's when you can start chasing lions with hounds, and that lasts usually until the quotas are met in the district. So it can go into February and March. Um, and then there becomes a season, I think it's about mid-February, where where the houndsmen just chase cats, but they don't kill them. So and, and if you ever know guys that have hounds, they don't like to kill them anyway. They just want no. to chase them. It's yeah, and, a great sport for them. In, in 1996, uh, they outlawed hound, hunt, hound hunting in, in Oregon. Right, I um, so tell me this. I just would like to pick your brain a little bit mm-hmm. on that. So how often is you or your family or wife seeing a cat via driving home out in the country, uh, crossing the road or out calling elk? Or I mean, how how often are you seeing a mountain lion in, in your uh, life um, at all? Well, the, you know, cats are pretty secretive. You don't see a lot of cats. I've seen a few cats. Um, my son has seen four of them cross the road right by the house here. Um, we live in a canyon, so it's a natural place for them to cross from the Gallatin Range into the Absorca Range. The ranch that we hunt on, the guys see cats there all of the time. Okay. Um, during so it's the about- season, I mean, they're there all, of the, all the time, and you see their tracks all the time. Okay, so it's about like uh, so. I mean, we see a cat every couple months, and I see their tracks all the time. And mm-hmm. I guess uh, before, when we still could run hounds, they were non-existent. They had them pretty well in check. But now, uh, I think our deer. How I'm taking that back to the deer. They they seem to be super skittish. They our black-tailed deer are congregating around houses, barking dogs. If somebody's got sheep or cattle, I'm hunting behind their place because they've probably got the predators as best and checked as possible. The deer have moved out of the mountains. Um, they And you get any kind of wind or rain, and they are up and moving. And I think it's simply because they're so scared of the cats. Yeah, that could be. And, and, that, and that's probably true here. I, if a cat is in the area on the ranch that we're hunting, there's no deer in that area. Um, and, uh, that's happened to me on the North end of the ranch, which is the closest to the Canyon that I live in the, this, this ranch is just a few miles from my house. So, yeah. um, you know, the cats come right down. I've got 15 acres on the river here. They, they hunt the river bottom and they go back up on the, on the mountain and the cliffs and stuff. And, uh, I, um, I got, uh, I got permission to hunt this nice big ranch about, I don't know, it's like five years ago for black, late season blacktail in a prime area. And I went and hung tree stands and I was super excited. And, um, I actually put some trail cameras out 
and there was a big orchard on the property and that's where I put the cameras. And when I was in there setting up in the summer, there was deer everywhere. Mm-hmm. And when I, I come back to hunt the rut and I'm in there on like day four and I've yet to spot a deer mm-hmm. and I, and I am like, what is going on? And so I go still hunting and I go up this Canyon, I put the horns together and I see two kittens running up the Canyon with their mama. <laughs> and yeah, there was a mountain lion on this, uh, uh, on this 400 acres and the, and the deer had all moved off completely. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it definitely has a big impact. Yeah, it does for sure. They kill a lot of deer every yeah. year, you know, 50, 60 deer a year at each cat. So yeah, I'm, but I'm at the same time, I, you know, uh, I'm not a predator hater. I mean, Oh, I'm not either. Yeah, they have their place on on on, on our uh, landscape, and I mean some of the some of the neatest times I've ever had, uh, it, you know, seeing wild things in wild places is cow calling in. Uh, I've cow called in lions twice, and seeing them eye to eye, uh, I I had a tag in my pocket and I didn't connect both times, but mm-hmm. definitely some of the most special times seeing them come in and stalking me. As, as crazy as that sounds, is some of the most memorable times I've ever had in the woods. Well, yeah, and and I've had that happen to me, too, with a cat. And to me, that's scarier than a grizzly bear. Yeah. <laughs> we, have our, we have our share of those around here, too. I, you know, there's something about predators that makes the country, it, it's, a, it's a little extra special. And, you know, living just north of Yellowstone, we have, we have the bears, the wolves, and the cats. Um, and you know, there's a, there's a balance there. I, I think, uh, wolves definitely have had an effect and, and that was something that was, you know, they were introduced and I'm not a wolf hater either. Um, but they were kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. I think there's so, there was already as many predators as the herds could handle. Um, you know, that nature has a way of reaching a balance and then they brought the wolves in and it definitely made the, the elk herds crash around here. Um, so we don't have those late season elk hunts that we used to have. Uh, um, and it, you know, it, it certainly changed a lot of things, but, but wolves have their place too. And they're, they're definitely a cool animal also. So, yeah, I've, I've experienced some wolves also in Northeast Oregon for sure. It's, mm-hmm. and once again, they, they don't seem, uh, the wolves in Oregon know that they're off the menu cause they'll just look at you like, what, what are you looking at? Yeah, uh, they they don't seem to show any fear for sure. Well, um, when you get enough of them, and you start hunting them. That'll change. <laughs> yeah, right. So <laughs> you you guys are elk hunting uh, amongst the grizzly bears, is that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, how is been there? How how is that cow calling uh, for elk? Yeah, it can be a little unnerving. I I mean I I think it's. It's like swimming in the ocean, you know, us, us uh, land lovers, when we go to the ocean, we're always thinking about great whites. You guys that don't live in grizzly bear country, you come out here and you're always thinking about grizzly bears. In, the odds are it's never going to happen. Um, you just got to you just got to know how animals act. You know, grizzly bears. The reason cats scare me more than grizzly bears, because cats are looking for a meal. Grizzly bears, they just attack you because. Um, that's their first reaction to anything. You know, they're the biggest, baddest thing. And if you walk in near one of their kills, they're, you know, they're going to 
they're going to rough you up a bit because that's their kill. Uh, if you surprise them, their their first instinct is to, you know, a good offense is is the best defense. Um, cats are sneaky. They sneak in because they they want to eat you. And, uh, and grizzly bears do too. I mean, you know, there's plenty of guys that have called in grizzly bears with cow calls too. But, uh, or black bears. But generally speaking, you just, you just got to know how the animals act. And sure. that, that adds a, you know, that adds an element of wildness to the whole hunt. There's, um, there's just something about hiking into grizzly bear country and, and wild, you know, country that's wild enough to support healthy grizzly bears and, and wolves. And, uh, there's something special about that. Yeah, that's funny you use that analogy because I like to tell people I live on the edge of the world. I, I'm right on the coast, and mm. we are in great white country. Yeah. And uh, I've known several. Uh, uh, my uh, father is a, a sea urchin diver for a living for many years, and we've lost some family friends, and we've had family friends been uh, hit by great whites. And I've known several surfers who've been attacked by great whites, but it doesn't keep us out of the ocean. No. Yeah. No. Um, so, yeah, that's funny that you bring them up. And so that kind of is a great analogy. I really think it is. It's, I mean, it's a similar situation. You've got a big, giant predator, but, uh, I mean, you're not going to stay out of the ocean. And, you know, guys like me go to the ocean. We're, we're thinking twice about taking that kayak, little kayak out there and right. <laughs> splashing around. But, uh um, the same can be said guys from back East that come out that have never been around grizzly bears and stuff. It's, it can be, you know, but at the same time, it's really exciting. Get your adrenaline going. It just, it just heightens that whole experience. So when you're elk hunting in these places, are, are you, are you packing uh bear spray or are you packing, uh, a revolver or, um, what's, what's your tactic there? Well, early on, I used to pack a 45 back when I was, you know, in high school and then for a few years beyond that. And then and then bear, when bear spray came out, I started packing bear spray and I packed that for a long time. And then last year I bought myself a 10 millimeter Glock because they're light and uh, uh, model 20. I actually got the model 40, so it's got a little longer barrel, but uh, um, it's 15 rounds. So. That's no, that's that, that's the that's the model twenty. The model twenty is a little bit shorter. The model forty's got a little longer barrel. Right on. So, oh, okay. And actually, I think the model forty came out before they came up with the model, or it was more available at first. You know, they they sell like hotcakes around here, the ten millimeters. So that's yeah, that's, that's an awesome. I and I use I have a chest harness for it, and my son packs. Uh, he's still got a forty-five. He likes to pack so. Um, yeah. But we sometimes will carry bear spray, so we do both. I think they're, it's a preference thing. I I think bear spray is definitely effective. Um, I yeah, don't. We, we don't have grizzlies, and a lot of my friends pack handguns uh, for they say for lions and bears, but I pack nothing. I'm like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I guess I'm a fool, but I I just feel uh, that that the, the lion and the black bear really aren't looking for us and they really don't want, I think it's more dangerous to get in a car and drive down the road. Definitely. Yeah. And he, you know, even when I went to Alaska, I just, I packed bear spray. Um, but the other guys all packed pistols and, uh, you know, we didn't have any problems. I, yeah. 
the one time I would up there would be uh, if you if you kill something in Alaska, you definitely want some kind of protection. And I think it's worthwhile to you know put up a defense of your meat if you can. Um, it, you know, every situation is a little bit different, but uh, um, up there, I you know, if you got something down, then then the firepower definitely is a lot more. Uh, makes you feel a lot more secure than a than a can of spray that you know depends on which way the wind's blowing whether it'll work or not <laughs> right or gets you rather than the bear so do you guys use uh, an electric fence for baby hunting in in that country no we don't no no i i think uh but you know lately we're we're packing like i said we're packing pistols so we got a pistol with us in a tent or um in right next to us at nighttime so and all for what that's worth (laughs) so since we're talking predators are the are the wolves having a big impact on calling elk and chasing elk and are you interacting with them and are they on the menu as far as do you have a wolf tag at that time and how's how's that work well we buy a wolf tag i um just uh it's well for one thing it supports the conservation of them um but uh you know it would be a thrill to kill a wolf with a bow especially a long bow or a self bow that that would be that would be one of the ultimate trophies i think gosh it took me forever to get a coyote with one um but uh so the hunting season is open for archery on you know and and they're in the country and so we buy one it's not that much for a resident anyway um but uh, as far as them affecting, you know, they've, effect, they've affected elk numbers. And I think how they've done that is mostly been through calf recruitment. Um, you know, you're seeing a lot fewer calves born per 100 cows. And I think it's the stress. It's, it's like I said, it's the straw that broke the camel's back. I think it's, it's one too many predators almost. Um, the elk are adapting to it. You know, they're they're... We did have, there's no doubt about it. We had too many elk in Yellowstone. You can only fit so many elk, you know, in a small area. So we had these huge migrations of elk every winter. And we had these, we had whole industries that have been around for generations, built up, you know, outfitters and stuff that that um, their families homesteaded up there. And, and they've guided elk hunters for all of that time, um, hunting elk that were migrating out of the park. And that that's all gone now that's changed because of the introduction the introduction of wolves and people will say well that's not the case it's something else but it's definitely the wolves were the that were that's the one thing that changed i've i've seen huge elk die-offs because of starvation over bad winters and they spring back within a year or two and you know when the herd size goes from nearly 30,000 animals down to 5 or 6,000 animals um, that's a significant change absolutely so how far i'm as i say there's still resident elk they still bugle you know i think people hunting them there seems to be more pressure even though um and i don't know why but you know maybe maybe all the hunting shows and and the popularity of bugling elk in and um people seem to be really more focused on big trophies and you know everybody wants to kill that 380 or that 400 bull which is a you know a not a realistic goal um but uh you know there's a lot of guys out there running around calling and i think that has more of an effect on elk 
behavior than anything. Sure. It seems like when I got into elk hunting, bugling was kind of not in the fad. Cow right. calling was the fad, and it seems like it's it's reversed, and bugling is the fad again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, well, Robert, do you got any more questions uh, about the whitetails? Yeah, I just want I, – I know Mark's pretty hard to get his tips and tricks out of, but I know he's got some under his sleeve. So, uh, um, you know, what do you think – you know, a lot of guys – you know, that listen or bow hunt, you know, they're, they're struggling, you know, they're, they're having a hard time mm-hmm. getting those first kills, especially with a traditional bow. You know, it took me a long, long, long time, longer than I want to admit. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, and I have a million things to blame it on, like everybody does, but, uh, you know, what advice could you give a new guy kind of just switching over or just coming into the sport, you know, that's been struggling for a few years? Like, cause when, when you talk to a, a a master like yourself, you know, it just, everything sounds so easy and you're just like, Oh, I'll just go out there. But you know, maybe like two, two or three little tips that helped you when you got started, maybe. Well, I, you know, uh, now I think, I think beginners have the luxury of the internet. There's so much information that wasn't there when I started. And, uh, you know, we relied on, think, like I said, thank goodness for Gene, Gene and Barry Wenzel. they, they really pioneered whitetail hunting and, and changed changed the world for everybody. Everybody, you know, all of all of the information out there. I think uh, I don't know how much you can you can give Gene credit, but as far as hunting scrapes and uh, his common sense way of thinking about things, really impacted a lot of things and um, and and being able to understand big bucks and stuff. But I would say the one thing. Uh, and since we're talking about whitetails, whitetails are everywhere. They live in a relatively small area. They're adaptable. They live around suburb. I've killed whitetails next to a subdivision before. Yeah, that's Amer- America's big game animal. I mean, they're everywhere. And uh, so there's opportunities there. And, you know, I would say for a beginner, don't don't get caught up in the whole antler game, you know, uh, some of the does I've killed have been way better trophies than than a lot of the bucks. I mean, they're they're tough, wily, cagey animals, and you kill you kill a doe with a, a traditional bow. You've you've done something. That's something to be proud of. And amen. You know that, and there's there's better eating, but I mean, whitetails are right up there with for table fare. I mean, we like I say, we depend on them to fill our freezer every year. We're blessed with elk once in a while. We're blessed with antelope once in a while. Um, but whitetails, you know, year in and year out, we get those doe tags. And we typically, we, we've we got a doe or two a piece down by now. We haven't killed any does yet this year. Um, but we're getting a little bit pickier, too. Um, but even for us guys that have killed a lot of deer, we... I like to be able to kill a deer early because you need, you know, you need that mental reinforcement um, that you, that what you're doing, you're capable of doing with a stick, you know, a wooden arrow and a traditional bow, um, having that validation that, yeah, I I can shoot clear through that deer and, and uh, all of that practice worked and um, that confidence is so important to your success. Yeah. And deer and whitetails are going to be the, you know, for most people, that's going to be your biggest opportunity and, uh, just get out there and don't, don't get stuck on one thing. You know, we, we hunt 
tree stands, but uh, but I'm not opposed to sitting on the ground building a natural blind. I haven't really right. got into the pop up thing yet because to me they kind of close me in, and I got tunnel vision out this little shooting window, so I I can't bring myself to sit very long in a pop up blind. Um, but they have their places and uh, they can work. You can set them up early enough and brush them in and uh, you can sit in them in inclement weather where, you know, tonight I kind of bailed. It was raining and snowing and big flakes coming down and I and uh, I didn't feel like getting wet. So I, I bailed on hunting this evening. <laughs> uh, the rut's still coming up. So, um, but uh, whitetails, the opportunities are out there and there's usually plenty of doe tags and and I would say, you know, we kill easily four, five, six does for every buck we kill. And uh, so keep real, keep realistic standards. Yeah, keep realistic standards and take pride in and I, you know, for me, and I guess this is the bow hunter in me, but I would rather kill a doe with with a traditional bow than a world record buck with anything else. Yeah, I'm with you there. I, I'm a bow hunter, and I take more pride in in doing that to me using anything else is kind of cheating and i maybe that's a way that i trick myself and trick my mind a little bit but uh um, i know i'm capable of doing it and so for me to to start using technology to start using these other things that's kind of cheating um that's the game i play personally i'm not against other people hunting legally um but if you really truly want to be a bow hunter, then you're all about the challenge. And, and uh, you know, the thing, the other thing I'd say is, is don't give up because when it happens for you, the harder you had to work for it, the better that satisfaction is going to be when you do have success, the better that feeling is going to be. Um, there's nothing like it. So um, one more thing before we finish up here, I know we're taking your time. We appreciate it, Mark, but, but uh one more, maybe I just kind of want to know what goes through Mark Baker's head when the shot comes. You've done it so many times. Um, you know, are you your instinctive shooting? Are you just like nothing but the spot? Do you tell yourself anything? Cause that was something I can remember when I was starting, just like, you're so used to, you know, shooting pins and just, you know, putting the pin on the animal and you shoot it. Like, yeah, that's easy. And then it's almost like magic. You know, and, and before you, sh- you, you kill that first animal, you're always like, it's instinctive, but you know, like, <laughs> what do I do? I mean, I got, I got a system so, now and I think everybody's heard my system. So I just want to know kind of what, what so, goes through your head. So yeah, the whole mental game, like for like, as the animals coming in, you calling an elk in or that buck's coming in, like speak to the mental game because yeah, I, I w- think that that's huge in, in, and, in, in traditional archery because you got to yeah, confidence. I, I, For me, it's, I think, an understated thing is confidence. You know, like, that's why I don't even like to shoot targets before season. I just stump shoot if I can, just because mm-hmm. it's a confidence thing for me. And I mean, I have my lucky pants. I have my lucky hat. You know, I'm all, I have my lucky glove. I'm, I'm an idiot, but I just want to kind of know. Maybe you could tell the guys what, what goes through Mark Baker's head before he gets the job done. You know, I struggle like everybody else does. Um, I think that that's what keeps it fun for me. I, I think the struggle is fun. It's, uh, it's something, it's like golf. You're never going to perfect it. Yeah. Um, I struggle with a bad release. Um, at the moment of the shot, sometimes I forget to pick a spot and I shoot at the whole animal and miss. Um, 
and then I and then I go, what what the heck? What why did why didn't you pick a spot? You know what? You know you blew it, and, and that happens to me too. Um, but I I get back out there and do it. I uh, you know I count my lucky cards when I do miss because I I don't want a bad hit. But uh, you know usually for me I you know I. I've, I've scouted the locations that I put stands or I select an ambush. Um, I know what my range is, where I'm comfortable shooting, and it's it's in that 15 yards and less with a cell phone. Um, I you know I just instinctively know what that range is. I don't I don't think about it when it happens. It's instinctive. I do have to mentally make myself pick a spot because the the excitement level is so high. It's easy it's easy to mess up and shoot at a whole animal. And then you're typically you're going to shoot high. Um, when you're in a tree stand, you shoot you tend to shoot high. So I you know I we shoot low on whitetails especially. They're they're very quick. Um, I I don't do the uh, the grunt and stop the animal. To me, uh, if an animal doesn't know you're there, that's always better. If they're slow walking, I practice enough on moving animals. I can I can hit a slow walking deer. You know. A, not a running deer, but a, but a walking deer, that's perfect to me. They're not looking at you. As they're moving, the terrain is going by their peripheral vision. You can get away with that drawing without being detected. Are, yeah, are, you, are, you, say, are you saying something to yourself? I mean, are you talking to yourself through this shot? Or? No, I'm, uh, I, I, when I decide I'm going to shoot this deer, I, if it's a buck, I'm not looking at the antlers anymore. I'm looking at the spot I want to hit. And, picking uh, that spot that's and, what i'm trying to concentrate and i totally agree with uh you know i've had more mishaps from them knowing i'm there and and jumping the string every, yeah. every blacktail i've killed out of my tree stand's been walking by and i don't i just shoot it walking i've i've hit a couple of them a little bit back um mm-hmm. but again a three blade broadhead did the trick and and yeah. And I'll take that every day. And I and I know I tell guys that, and they're like, "What?" But man, that was my biggest hurdle. Switching was was so used to how I shoot with a compound and the switch, and and the animals jumping the string, and and that was a big one for me. So I totally agree. And you know, and I think, uh, and, and getting back to the beginner thing, I think uh, beginners maybe think they're never going to get a close opportunity. You will get close opportunities. Just figure out how to get a little bit closer. If a, if a deer are walking a little bit too far away, put a pile of brush there so they have to veer around that brush and get closer to your stand if you're tree stand hunting. Um, there's there's all kinds of little tricks to do um, to get them close. People are more accurate the closer you are. If you're if you're not confident in your in your shooting ability, I I don't know too many people that can't hit a pie plate at five yards almost every shot on a target butt. Um, get them close and then, yeah. you know, shoot them when they're walking. Honestly, people watch these TV shows and they do the errant thing or whatever. That's a big mistake on whitetails when they, you know, traditional bows, especially are not fast enough usually to make them a mistake. A compound might be a different thing. And especially at 30 and 40 yards where you have the, you have, uh, the sights and the release aid and the, and 300 feet per second on your side. But with a traditional bow, you still have to get away. You're not going to draw and hold for a minute and a half. You're going to draw, and you're not going to hold very long. Or if you're like me, you shoot really quick. Um, you got to get away with that movement. So when they're when they're walking slow, practice that shot. Uh, they can't 
they're seeing trees and brush go by their peripheral vision. And if you time your draw, you don't want to jerk it back, but you time that draw slow as they're walking by, um, you're going to get away with that movement and be able to, to put it right in there if they're close. And that's, that's really the secret. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, and then, I, I, then if you shoot under them, sometimes they just keep walking and you shoot them again. I've done that too. Yeah, yeah, I've gotten second shots. I well, I did one article where I got four shots in a box. I wouldn't <laughs> even go there. That, that's the that's the that's the beauty of uh, shooting a really quiet bow for sure. That's and it. and I know you're a super humble guy, and but I'm going to go ahead and um, you know uh, reiterate this that you know you're just not some some guy we picked off the corner i mean mark baker's a guy that's hunting with self-made self bows and you're seasoned you've taken over 100 animals with a self bow you've you even more impressive is you've raised some sons you've got your son Corey, who's taken nearly 50 animals or in that area with the self bow i mean that that says a lot about you that you've raised uh, uh, a young man who's showed that much success with the self bow. Yeah. I appreciate it. You guys, I, uh, you know, and I never set out to do anything special. I'm just a regular guy. I just do, I've done it a lot and you do something long enough for, you know, and you, and you start to figure things out. Uh, and you have opportunities like we have in Montana to hunt. Um, you're going to have success and, um, and, and, you know, just, just, just keep on the, keep on the straight and narrow as far as your, your goals and your challenges and stuff. And, um, you know, you're never going to, you're never going to kill something with a self bow. If you're picking up the rifle because you want to get that big buck or something, you got to stick with it. And, and I, you know, there's some seasons, I, there's a lot of years I didn't kill bucks. I killed does. Oh, m- that cow elk I took from three yards this year. She might as well have been a 400 inch bull because mm-hmm. that's how I felt about it. Yeah. So, um, you know, you gotta be, you gotta be happy with that and you gotta, you know, you gotta count your successes sometimes in just the encounters. I mean, to me early on in my career for for me to get one chance at a mature buck during the year, whether I, I blew it or not, that was my success for that year to get one chance at a mature antelope, one chance at an elk, one chance, you know, to me, that was a perfect season. And if I blew it, that was my fault. You know, I didn't have nothing to blame it on. I kept, kept my gear simple but that was success to me and uh you know over the year i got the years i got better i got more proficient i learned how to practice that fit my style i learned um what gear worked for me and and uh you know when you do it for a long time you figure those things out and then you hope you hope you stay healthy uh, (laughs) long enough to keep doing it well mark we we really appreciate your time and uh, we're really, uh, you know, wish you good luck this whitetail season and, um, definitely, uh, look forward to trying to get you back on the show in the future and here at track quest podcast. We're, we're just trying our best to shine a bright light on traditional bow hunting. I mean, that's, that's our, that's the goal. And you guys are doing a great job too. Well, we appreciate that. All right. That's been fun guys. All right. Thank thanks, you very much. We thanks again, it. Mark. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks again, folks, for joining us tonight. We really appreciate the support we're getting on the podcast. Uh, We wouldn't be doing it without you guys. 
Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, Podbean. Uh, word of mouth helps the podcast a lot. If you guys can uh, tell a friend, spread the word. Um, also, if you guys can leave us a review on iTunes and Stitcher, uh, that could also be a big help to us. Uh, check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Keep the wind in your face. Pick a spot and shoot straight. Are you